three weeks ago, I shared something from Luke chapter 10 on Mary and Martha. And we spoke about Mary's uh, one thing that was necessary, yeah? one thing that was needful. We sp- tried to examine a little bit about the distraction that Martha was uh, experiencing and tried to kind of look at that distraction more deeply. And we spoke about the fact that there's just something about distraction that's, in this case, in Luke chapter 10, that was connected with a deep anxiety, a deep troubled anxiety. And this anxiety has a way of plugging into us, our hearts, so much so that our hearts are susceptible, plugged into, connected with, stuck in, clipped to, lots of things out there. Jesus said to her, you are troubled by many things. And we spoke about the condition that, of anxiety that causes us to be distracted from God. And we also spoke about the fact that what Martha was distracted from was that the one thing that was necessary for all those troubles was present with them. And that was Jesus. And Mary saw that. She recognized the day of her visitation. She recognized that the one who could solve all her problems and be everything in her was with her there. And Martha had missed it for for anxiety and for that distraction. We also spoke about the fact that when we miss our time of visitation, there's usually judgment that comes after that. And we spoke about the fact that when God comes and visits us, He gives us an opportune time to escape destruction, escape hard times. I'm aware of the fact that in Psalm 94, it says, Blessed is who God chastises or disciplines and teaches out of His law, so that He grant Him relief from the days of evil, where a pit will be dug for the wicked. What He's saying is this, there is a visitation of God, an opportunity, and sometimes this opportunity doesn't seem very obvious. If you're not attentive to Him, you miss that day of visitation. And the day of visitation is meant to grant us relief, to equip us, empower us, anoint us, heal us, do a work in us that will cause our future, our future days to be not one of judgment but one of blessing. We are facing dark days ahead. And the Bible does not predict that the things are going to get better. Actually, it predicts that it's going to get worse and calamitous, actually. And there are cycles in history, in the history of the church, where the church has experienced that kind of cycle of oppression, persecution, whatever it is, destruction, disorder. That's often preceded by days of visitation. I believe we are in such a time. I believe we are in such a time. And in many ways, our series that goes ahead, as well as as a fall conference, is something so serious to to me. I've been very burdened by this for the past several months. And 
I feel in some ways what I'm going to share with you is, has been burden, burdening my heart so much that I, I'm caught up by it. I'm caught up by it. Because we are in a very serious time in which I think we are on the verge of some serious... Um, I'm sorry to use the word serious so much. Seriously. <laughs> and on the verge of tremendous dark days. But God does not have dark days ahead of us. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Because of those dark days. Because of those dark days. And so it's not more optimistic times, but dark days times in which the Lord will equip us for it in this, what I call, this margin, this day of visitation. It's amazing. In uh, Luke chapter 19, for example, Jesus talks about these days of visitation. He says, in verse 41 of Luke chapter 19, it says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, Jerusalem, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. So what he's saying is that the days of visitation would make for peace. Not darkness, but peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Yeah? And so I feel that um, the days that we are in now are very crucial. And I feel that in order for us to understand what God has called us to as a church, we may have to have a little bit of kind of insight into the days that we are in. Because in many ways, um, what God has called us to is to prepare us for a time in which the days of, of, of darkness will be met by a people who are equipped and ready to use, be used by God in those days. Our time has not yet come. And I'm not too worried about or, or concerned about many of the things that many pastors are concerned about in churches. I'm only concerned about the fact that we will fulfill our desire, uh, God's desire for us to be a people who know how God displays strength and do exploits for the days that are ahead. I think there's going to come a time in which the church will not look the same at all. And I mean the church of Jesus uh, all over. And I'm concerned that we take the opportunity that God has, the day of visitation. Because I don't believe that the days, are, the days that we are living in where we can take for granted the kind of peace that we have, even that we have, will remain forever. But... God is not doom and gloom. God is rising and shining. Amen? Um, and so because of that, I'd like us to turn to 2 Timothy. And uh, we'll begin a series on 2 Timothy today. 2 Timothy. I'm just going to read chapter 1 of that. And we'll more or less do a Bible study over the next few Sundays. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, 
To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as I did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame or stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. It's interesting how our calling is not really li li limit, um, plugged into or based upon our particular works or even now our gifts, but because of his own purpose, yeah? which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, Paul is in prison in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know of the, all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let us pray. Lord, we welcome your presence. We ask you that you will do a work among us. And do not let us go. We are interested not just in a Bible study, but we are interested in what you are doing. We want to know what you have in store for us and what you would have us do. And so we welcome you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So you, 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 you may help us to have a little bit of background for this epistle. Um, Paul is writing his last letter, probably his last letter, period, to his spiritual son, Timothy. It is his, it is his last letter that we, we have of him in our canon, in our, in our Bible. And he's thinking of the fact that it's, 90, it's, 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 uh, it's AD 64, okay? probably around AD 64. Scholars put the, the writing of this letter as somewhere between 64 and 67, or even 63. Things are turbulent. He knows that he's, going, he's about to be executed. He doesn't know when and how. But he's in Rome, and he's about to be executed. 
He's leaving the church of Ephesus, which is a major church, to Timothy, who seems rather discouraged, full of anxiety, full of fears. And as he looks at the, the, the church ahead of him and the days that are coming, he can see the darkness impending, the gloom coming. In AD 64, Nero was emperor. He was emperor and in AD 64, many of you know that it could have been Nero, it could have been accident, but a tremendous fire spread through all of Rome and burnt 7 out of 13 districts. It was widespread and it was devastating. Immediately, Nero, who began as a very good and very uh, uh, judicious emperor, Nero began a decline in his mental health, in his whole moral state. Decline, he murdered his uh, wife, and at the same time, he began persecuting Christians. And to use Christians as a scapegoat, he blamed the Christians for that fire. And many, many Christians in Rome were killed. Many Christians. That began the days of darkness ahead. 64 onwards. From 64, 65, 66, 67. Opinion had turned very drastically against Christians. And Christians were considered illicit. And they were, crucif uh, they were crucified. They were severely chased from pillar to post. Many of you know that by AD 66 in Jerusalem, bands of zealots had begun to gain more and more confidence against Rome. Okay, against Rome. So within 66 to 68, they were rebelling and they managed to oust the Roman outpost in, in, in Jerusalem and scored a minor victory against Rome. Nero was the emperor and he intensely um, um, persecuted Christians until the day of his death in AD, AD 68. From AD 68 onwards, in Jerusalem, so Paul's in Rome and, 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 and all this is going on in Jerusalem, but it affected Rome. It affected the whole Roman Empire. The darkness continued to press in because the conflict that, was, that had been going on in Rome and the, and the madness of, of uh, Nero had reached a fever pitch and there was a, a stirring up and a, and, and a whipping up of uh, antagonism towards Christians for the fact of their own beliefs that were considered barbaric to the, to the Romans because they believed that Christians were eat, eating flesh and drinking blood. That they were atheists because they didn't believe in the many gods or the pantheon of gods or they did not worship the emperor. They were considered disloyal the whole moral structure of Rome was opposite to that of the Bible. And so Christians were considered immoral at that time. Very similar to what's beginning to take place today. 
Now, here's, here's the thing. By AD 70, Nero was dead. But the antagonism to Christians continued. It got darker and darker and darker. In AD 70, you understand that Titus, the, at that time the general who later became uh, emperor, attacked Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem, and hemmed them in as Jesus had spoken when he visited the earth. That passage we read in Luke chapter 19. They surrounded, hemmed it, and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And it is actually true, Josephus says, that there was not one stone that was left. Why? Because during the conflict, many, many Jews brought in silver and gold into Jerusalem and began to pack Jerusalem by their presence and there were about 100,000 Jews in Jerusalem at that time when it was being hemmed in by, by, uh, by Titus. It is said that during the fires of, of Jerusalem and the temple and all, there was so much molten silver and gold that had seeped through the stairs and through the bricks and all that, that the Roman soldiers did not allow one stone to be, to be upon another just to get and dig out the silver and the gold that had uh, seeped through the cracks. There was not one stone one upon another. Josephus and Suetonius say the same thing. Can you imagine that? What Jesus had spoken about in Luke chapter 19, about the day of his visitation, came to pass very, very soon. He died AD 33. Right? AD 70, 70 was the destruction of the temple. Later on, AD 35, all Jews were scattered from Israel. They, the tribes never, never came back. Most, most, most Jews were away until 1948. It's, it's amazing. Now, Paul writes to Timothy in the light of the impending doom and the impending darkness. And I believe that this epistle to, the, to Timothy is a very intimate epistle. You want to know what's in Paul's heart, what's deepest in Paul's heart. Paul writes a lot of things, but the deepest things that are in his heart can be found in 2 Timothy. The, the core meaning of his whole corpus, of everything that he was, he was about, can be seen in 2 Timothy because he writes to his own spiritual son. And it is in his last letter or his last email. You want to read the last thing to the person who's closest to him. So probably Timothy was the closest to him. And so let's look at this because of the fact that even for us as a church, I am very convinced that God, right at the beginning, where we've always said this, is preparing us for the days ahead. Amen? He's preparing us for the days ahead. And because of that, there is a certain way in which we are going to experience God as a church that may be unique, not better, but unique, particular to our particular our, our, our call. I feel that as, as we look ahead, especially as we get ready for Paul, Paul Conference, 
I feel that God has something so important that I, I, am, I am very burdened about it. Burdened in a good way. I feel the burden of the Lord about this because of the days ahead. But so, let's have a look at this uh, in 2 Timothy. As you look at, um, as look at Paul. I want to look at it a little closely. that Timothy and the church that he's pastoring at Ephesus will stand. That will, they will not be um, destroyed. They will not lose heart. They will not lose morale. They will not forsake their faith. That they will be able to be tested and in the testing, their faith will actually come forth stronger. That days ahead, the dark days ahead would be the days of their opportunity and not um, days of collapse. And so the first thing, you, it's very interesting to, to note in verse 1, he talks about the substance of his message, the substance of Christianity. Okay? And I'm using the word substance very carefully. He's using, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, According to the promise of the... It's according to the promise, right? According, coming out of. According to, right? According to the, the life that is in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is this. The substance that I'm apostle according to is the life that is in Christ Jesus. Not a system of ethics. Not his conscience, not what he thinks is the good life, not a philosophy, not a code, not a cultural, cultural leaning, but it's a substance. It is the life that is in Christ Jesus. He's apostle according to the life that is in Christ Jesus. It's a supernatural life. It's the word in Greek, it's the word Zoe. It's the God kind of life. He says, I'm apostle. Not of a new code, a new, new, new philosophy, a new way of, of living, a new way of justice right now. But it is, he says, I'm an apostle according to that substance. What I'm dealing with is that substance. If I'm dealing with anything that is not of that substance, that is of that divine, supernatural substance, I'm not of that. I'm, I'm according to. And it's in accord with, coming out from. Amen? So Paul is saying, what I'm dealing with right now, my, my, my situation may not look very good, but what I'm dealing with is divine life of Christ that has been given to us. He's referring to the gospel that says that essentially Christianity has a substance. It is not a way in which we try to be good or that we think that this is, this is the, the, the moral philosophy. I'm talking about something that came and got put in front of us, put inside us. It's called the substance of Christ's life. Hiya. You're not excited. <laughs> According to the life that is in Christ Jesus, 
Anything other than that is not Christianity. It may look like it, it may quote the Bible, it may be, it sound really great, and then be attractive. But if it is not the life that is in Christ Jesus, the supernatural life of Christ Jesus, if it is of our life, if it is of our trying to approximate Christian things, it is not of God, it's not Christian. What he's saying is Christianity is a distinct thing. It is something that, that is distinguished from everything else. Every other good thing, every other good intention, every other good um, thing that people are talking about, it is distinguished from that because it is the life that is in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, everything flows from there. If you look at chapter 1. Okay, let's have a look at this. Verse 3. Talking to his beloved child. It's not his child. He wasn't born from Paul. Paul was not even married. Timothy was his child in the sense that that substance was birthed in him. It was passed down to him. He got it. But not his own ardent trying to do Christian things based upon Christian Bible. He got the substance of Christ. That's because Christ Jesus. That is why he's his son. He's his son because he received. Okay? I thank God, verse 3, whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. What he's saying is this. You, Timothy, have this sincere faith. Sincere is not meaning he's a very sincere guy. Sincere is perhaps better translated, the unfeigned faith, the unadulterated, unadulterated faith, not mixed in with other kind of, other kind of things that look like Christianity. The idea was, um, I, I heard someone say, if you want to go and buy a pillar in Corinth, you know, you would, uh, you would go to the, the pillar maker. And sometimes as you buy these pillars, they have cracks in them. And so what they do is that they fill, it, fill the cracks with filler. And so when somebody wants to buy a pillar, they would ask that person, Sincere? And the, and the guy who's saying, there's no filling, there's no patch, patchwork, he says, Sincere. Now, that word for sincere is not that same word, but the, you get the idea. Unfeigned faith. He's talking about a faith that is genuine. It's of that substance. Yeah, I bought some, some little gold things in Malaysia. And uh, in Malaysia, gold is uh, sold in terms of carrots, just like here, right? Do you know how, my, how many carrots most gold is here? You're very good. You don't, you don't do gold. 14 carat, right? Is it 14 carat? In Malaysia, it's 22 carat. That means the purity of the gold that you buy in Malaysia is, 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 uh, is, is, is much greater. And so because of that, the gold is a lot softer. Yeah, it's a lot softer. Not everybody likes softer gold, but whatever it is. So when, when Paul is talking to Timothy and saying, you have the sincere faith, the unfeigned faith. What he's saying is that it's the genuine article. It is distinct from every other article. Yeah? It's distinct. It's not like things that look like the article, but it, it is distinct. 
Amen? <laughs> All right. A few years ago, when I, several years ago, I guess, since I've been in America for so long, we had this spate of newspaper reports of uh, people who, could, who were caught in the hospital acting as doctors. Acting as doctors. They are feigning as doctors, right? They wore the, the, the coat. They had the nice, whatever, stethoscope. They walked like that, a little bit uh, arrogant and all that. Just like doctors. <laughs> no, I, was gonna, I, wish I shouldn't go there. Um, and with the authority and the gate and everything, and they talk the talk and all that. You know, it's almost as if, who's the guy that acts as house? What's the name of that English actor? Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie. It's as if Hugh Laurie says, I'm now a doctor because I practice it in play acting and now I know a lot of things about, about being a doctor. The thing is that he's not a doctor. He may look like a doctor, he acts like a doctor, speaks like a doctor, dresses like a doctor, but he's not a doctor. Now there's much Christianity that looks like it, speaks like it, acts like it, believes like it, talks like it, tries to, tries to do the things of it, but it's out of a different substance. Does that make sense? So when he's talking about Timothy, he's talking to Timothy about... means the substance of his Christianity is what's there, not how his behavior is. Not his moral philosophy. Not his ideas about things. About, not his worldview. He's talking about whether the substance... When, he, when he's talking about an unfeigned faith, he's concerned that the church in the days of darkness have that unfeigned faith, that faith, the genuine faith, not the actor faith. So when the Bible says, not as hypocrisy, the word hypocrisy in Greek is the same word as acting. A hypocrite is an actor. Okay? So when, he, when, so when, when Paul is talking about Timothy's sincere faith, not hypocrisy, not, uh, not, un, not, not feigned faith, not acting faith. He's talking about something that's there. You will know that it's there when the trial comes. You will know it is there when the fire comes, when the pressure comes. Then only you will know. Some, for some people, they can say all the right things, believe all the right things, and do all the right things in peacetime. In peacetime, you don't know. It's when discernment is needed, where deception is there, that you will know. And, and so what Paul is saying is this. When the days of darkness come, it is very important that you have the genuine thing because I'm apostle of that. Anything else, I'm not apostle of. I'm not apostle of other things. I'm apostle of that. And I have to tell you that as a church, we have to be apostles of that. Because there's a lot of important things that are, that, that, that are out there. But you have to be an apostle of that. You must come out of that. Because only that will cause you to survive. And I'm concerned that for, for, for our church and the Church of Jesus Christ generally, not only here but in, in, in Malaysia and, and many other places, I'm concerned that we have that thing that when the persecution comes or where the darkness, where the confusion comes, you and I in the shaking will manifest that and that will be our opportunity to manifest that. Some of you are saying, how do I know? I don't know whether I have it. You're making me feel uncomfortable. Don't worry. There's more to come. But what, what, what's really important that for us to establish today is this. Paul was an, uh, 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 an apostle according to that. It causes miracles. 
hearing, intimacy, love to come. It's that that causes us to be able to worship that song that we sang. Um, Thank you for the love, for, for your love, Lord. Does that make sense? It's that that causes you to tear up. It causes you that when you come to, close to the presence of God, you start shaking. I don't mean shaking physically. Your heart just starts trembling because of the love that you have experienced. A love that you, you're, you're, you're in sync with. You're in a, on the same wavelength with. It's not a thing of the, of the mind or thought. It has to do with the fact that it happened to you. And so, so God things are happening to you. You're not making God things. You're not trying God things. You're not trying to discipline yourself into God things. The God things are there. Now, one of the things that I'm going to be speaking about is when I was in Malaysia, we were celebrating 10 years anniversary of the revival that took place in, uh, in, uh, in, in Barrio. Now, I know the people who were involved in, in that revival because they were classmates of mine in, 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 uh, in college. That, 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 that revival in Barrio brought whole villages, whole villages to Christ. Whole schools, the high school that my, my classmates were involved in, were closed down because of the revival. People were repenting and people were, were coming to teachers and confessing their sins to the, 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 the teachers because something had, had, had been stripped off. They could see their sin. They, they were repenting. It's like we were, like, uh, we were, we were talking about in, in, uh, in communion. Ten years later... Okay, 10 years later, we were celebrating the anniversary, not of that revival, but the anniversary of the latest wave of revival, okay, which was 10 years before. The first, one, first revival was in the 70s. That shows, tells you how old I am. In the 70s. But what happened was that after that first revival, where tremendous things happened, Kids were going from village to village and they don't, they're not the way, the way. How many of you know that in the jungle there are no street lamps? This is not Narnia. There are no street lamps. And the Lord would light up the leaves in front of them. And they saw the leaves glowing and, and the Lord would speak to these kids, right? Go follow the leaves and they would go to the other village and they would come and the village was ready for them to hear. To, to hear the gospel, even though they had not heard that they were coming. And when they, and when they came, they preached the gospel, and old men, we're all young women, old, old men, uh, uh, young, young women, old women, young men, were weeping before the Lord. <laughs> this is an old man talking. <laughs> they were weeping before the Lord because of the conviction of, of, of the Lord's uh, Holy Spirit. But what had happened was that when these guys came to college, they had cooled down. And they were dry. And they couldn't find God. Then they went to this church, FGA, Full Gospel Assembly, and the charismatic movement had just touched them. And the thing about these people who had experienced such depth of Jesus, of Jesus is that it was very hard for them to hear from people who had not experienced those same depths. 
And so wherever they went, they found that Christians were just talking out of their heads. Yeah. They couldn't find that substance. Then they went to FGA, Full, full Gospel Assembly, and when they went there, Full Gospel Assembly was themselves having a revival during the charismatic revival. And about five or six of them went there and they said, that's the footprint that we saw in Barrio. And God began to revive them because they saw the same spirit, the same substance, unfeigned, not pretend, not approximated, but the actual thing itself. And so what happened was that FGA, this church, began to be a source of mission back to Barrio, and back to East Malaysia, back among the Aborigines, and brought the gospel back and fired them up. And they had waves and waves of revival going back and forth for 20, 30 years. Isn't that amazing? We are talking about the substance we are dealing with. What Paul is talking about is the life that is in Christ Jesus. That sincere faith, that sincere faith. Amen? So when he's talking about that, he's talking about an inheritance that Timothy had that came from his mother, Lois and Eunice, right? Correct? That sincere faith that was in your mother and your grandmother. It was in Lois, Lois and, and Eunice. He's talking about that thing. It's almost as if he's not even talking about Timothy. He's talking about that thing. According, in accordance of which he has been called. I want to draw our attention not just to how people behave, but to the thing itself. The thing itself. And so Paul is saying, you got that from them. What is an inheritance? It is a substance, but it's also a way of life that has been inherited. And what Paul is saying is this, you got that inheritance. You don't feel it now, Timothy, because you're full of stomach aches and belly aches and uh, anxieties and fears and all that. But you, that is your inheritance. It's embedded in you. It's in ground. It's inlaid in your, in, your, in, your, in your person. You may be behaving like the old man, like a natural man. But inlaid in you is something that was passed down from God, the life that is in Christ Jesus, and you were nurtured in it from Lewis and... Uh, and uh, Eunice, so that you are not only receiving this substance by faith in Christ, you are also nurtured in it so much so that you saw the models of the shape of God's love through these two women. We have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. You may not feel it, but it's there. So you may say, oh, I don't have that substance. I don't feel that substance. I tell you it's there. It's under the ground. And you, need to, you and I need to stir up the gift that's in there because, you have, because if you dig for that well, you will find it. It's there. Faith, recognize the thing that's there. The difference between faith and non-faith and trying to believe is this. Faith is not something in which you, you believe that, you hope that if I believe enough, it will move God's hand. Faith doesn't try to move God's hand. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, right? Faith understands it's there already. Faith can see that the thing is there. 
So when Paul is talking about the faith of, of Timothy, he's talking about what Timothy knows is there. He knows it's there. But you have to stir it up or else you will not feel that it's there. Does it, is, is that make sense? It's dormant. It's under the ground. It's going to be there whether you take, it, take note of it or you use it or you dig for it or not. It's still there. It will continue to shine like a, like a, like a fiery ball in, under the earth, under the ground. It's still there. It will be, it's there when you pay attention to it or when you're not paying attention to it. It is there. Faith has to do with the fact that you acknowledge, you heard, you apprehend the fact that it is there. Not that you're trying to make it happen. Amen? So when the disciples were told by Jesus, go let the, down the nets for a catch. Okay? And Peter said, at your word, I'm going to do it. Doing it. He was not trying to have enough faith so that all the fish will go there. Or that he could move God's hand so that there will be a lot of fish. He was not trying to stir up his faith so that it's there. He had faith because he heard, he saw, he apprehended, he caught it, that the fish were there waiting for him. Huh. The fish were waiting for him. Faith by faith, Paul says, we perceived that God has done it. By faith, we perceive. Faith doesn't make things happen. Faith perceives that the thing, the thing is, we actually see it. So when Peter let down his nets, he let down his nets based upon the fact that the fish were there. So when Jesus said, let down your nets for a catch, Jesus saw in his spiritual eyes that the fish were there. No stress. Not trying. Not trying. Not trying to, to stick the faith to the sticking place. Not trying to stir up anything. That is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, he's, we will need that kind. But that kind can only come when you stir up the gift that's within you. Let's, shall we see that? And uh, I, I like that because you, it means this. It takes into account the fact that you don't feel it. It hasn't been real to you. Perhaps you've never even experienced what is there. Just like the fish could be there for a donkey's generation and you still don't catch it. Faith has to do with the fact that we realize that it's there and you can access it. Faith is not trying to make it go there. Faith is the acknowledgement of what is. Amen? So, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, or the unfeigned faith, a faith that dwelt first in your, your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Okay? Therefore, you fan into flame the gift of God. What he's basically saying is this, you may feel fear, but there is an unstirred spirit of power and love and sound mind that's in you. You may not feel it. You may only feel And if you go by what you feel, by what you sense only, you definitely I don't have a spirit of power, love and sound mind. I have a spirit of fear or I have fear. 
or I feel fear, right? What Paul is saying is this, and, and this, this is what trips a lot of people up, including myself. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, the charism. Okay, the word gift is the word charism, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Charism means the supernatural substance of God. Which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, if I were Timothy, on a cursory reading of what Paul is saying, I would say, no, I do not have a spirit of power and love and, and sound mind. I have what's immediate to me, what I know. I can feel it. I feel fear. And if Paul says, I don't have a spirit of fear, Paul, you are in denial. But Paul is saying you don't have a spirit of fear. That means your spirit is not fear. Your spirit is power, love and sound mind. You never identify with who you, what you are feeling. You never identify with anything other than the life that is in Christ Jesus. You never identify with what you think is people want you to be or what people call you. You are who God says you are. You, can, you don't even dare to identify as something else than what God says you are. And what God was, was saying is this, you have a spirit of power, love and sound mind. But it's not stirred up, that's all. It's just underground, underground. The real you is a spirit of power, love and sound mind. It's unstirred. And so many Christians are living in an identity that is not authentic to who they are. They are living according to their history or what people say they are or what they have been or what they feel. And that is why today's society is so mixed up because since Freud and Rousseau, we identify with who we subjectively think we are. So we self-identify all over the place. If your identity is based upon your own subjectiveness, subjectivities, you are at sea. But as a Christian, you do not have the liberty to identify that way. You are identified as Christ, the life of Christ in you. Your past has been. Doesn't matter what people say of you. You are Christ in you. Doesn't matter what you have done what you've been, mistakes you've done, the indelible mistakes that are in your psyche, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but you do feel it. But the more and more you and I stir up the gift in you, or fan into flame is the, is the best translation, the gift of God, the, the, the truth of God, the, the supernaturalness of God in us, then the more and more you will feel it in your senses. But whether you feel it or not, doesn't change the fact that God is in you and is He Amen? If you are not ready for that, the days of darkness will actually cause you to misstep and function under your habit of being who you were before. And it's tragic. It's tragic. We had a, a bajariga, what do you call it? Uh, anybody? Parakeet. We had two parakeets. 
We went for holiday, and there had been water that we had put for the parakeet on a trip. And we had gone on a holiday for about one week. The parakeet didn't realize that there was water there and died of, of uh, what do you call dehydration. It was just this close to the water. That happened. But many Christians suffer that fate because of the fact that even though the truth is, under, is, is inlaid into them, they've not by faith began to dig up the wells for that. This fall conference, um, some coming before the Lord so that He can do that in our lives. And I am urgent about the fact that none of us miss out on what God is wanting to do in our lives. The, the issue for Paul is not the injustice that he was facing when he was put in prison, falsely accused. Going, this was his second imprisonment. He had been imprisoned once before. This is second imprisonment. He was not so much concerned about the fact that he was facing injustice for being in prison. There was a bigger issue for him than, 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 than the injustice that he was experiencing. The issue was that the fact that the church may not have been ready for the dark days. And so what's in his mind had already given up the fact that he was going to get justice. The issue for him was not whether he was going to get, come out of prison. He already had accepted the fact that he would be in prison. He had accepted the fact that injustice will be the prevalent thing. And that his life did not depend upon getting justice. His life depended upon he that was in him that was, great, that was greater than he was in the world. He was concerned that the, not that the church get justice. He was concerned that the church would be able to stand and have the substance. He was concerned about something that was much bigger than his own particular well-being. And so because of that, he says, stir up the spirit that was in you. And the next part is, by the laying on of my hands. Some of you, now I come from a, a family that I, I'm third generation Christian. My great-grandfather was a tin miner in Malaya and he had been met by Western missionaries, yeah, uh, English missionaries who came and preached the gospel to him. I, for one, am not someone who speaks bad about Western missionaries. I love them and I welcome them and I think the, West, the East has a debt to, offer, to give you back, you Americans. We owe you. We owe you. I'm not one who willy-nilly can just blow off those colonizing, so to speak, missionaries. I revere them. I'm thankful for the heritage that they have given me. I'm not, I'm not denying the fact that, that there were abusers and there were all kinds of things, but there were ways in which a heritage was passed on by a very godly and very gentle man to my grandfather who gave up his tin mines to become a preacher. My grandfather was a court clerk in the land office. And because he was a Christian and a, and a living Christian, he had 12 children, none of whom backslided, and all of them served the Lord. 
One day, somebody who was in his church, the grandfather was an elder in the gospel hall, the brethren church, one young guy came to the church and his father persecuted him and said, you will never be able to go to this church. I do not want you to become a Christian. And then this boy told him, Ang Chai Tit is an elder of that church. Immediately his father said, okay, you can go to that church. Even though he had persecuted him very badly. Why? Because Ang Chai Tit, which was my grandfather, was known to be a person who was very, very honest. He had opportunity to make a lot of money from bribes and all that because he was a clerk in the, in the land office. And everybody knew that he was a man of integrity, a kind man, and a man who was godly. I received a tremendous blessing from my family who, in the end, came out of the Brethren Church and entered into the life of the Spirit. So there's a way in which I saw in my family the works of God. And in, in many ways, the life of, as a Christian became that much easier because I didn't have problems being disillusioned with Christians. That one happened late, a lot later. That happened when, when I became a pastor. But when I was growing up, I was not. And what Paul is, was saying to, to Timothy is this, you got that, you have an inheritance, it's inlaid. But there's also a way in which, even if you did not come from a Christian family, there's an inheritance that has to be stirred up because I laid hands on you. The laying on of hands is something that marks Timothy's entry into this life of the Spirit, the life of God's life, because he was into the church. He was baptized into the church. And there's a way in which, there's another way in which we experience that life, that inheritance, when we enter in with the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a spiritual body. It's not just a community. It is not just a gathering of people who take care of each other and each other's needs. It is a body of people who are plugged into and joined to the head. It is the bride of Christ, not just community. It's the bride of Christ. Guys love the, the, the church. And we are joined in there, not because we join the club or, not, or because we, we, we pay a certain amount of money or scripture. We are joined there by baptism because when, in baptism, what happens is that we, a supernatural thing happens that joins us with the life that's in the body. When Paul says, you got that, because you are part of this being laid, of, laid hands on. He's not just saying, I laid hands on you and I'm so anointed. See, you got, you got this. No, he's saying, you came into the body. You are part of this company of people that surround the presence of God. So much so that where he was, there, where we are, two or three or, or more, there he is as well. He's present in our presence. And so what he's saying to, to Timothy is this, you got this inheritance, not just because of, of the fact that you had came from a Christian family, but I laid hands on you. You stir that gift, gift up because you, you are part of this commonwealth and you are part of this commonwealth. When you pray together, Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, there's something about prayer that takes us out of ourselves and into this other space 
in which we are in the Spirit. That's why I want to, I want to, I want to encourage us all to come for Paul Conference. Come for Paul Conference. If, if you need financial help or it is inconvenient, I want to put it to you that this assembling of ourselves together is so powerful. So powerful because of the days ahead. I feel that what God wants to do is to do a work in us that will get us ready for that. And it has to do with the body. It has to do not with your parents, not with the luck of the draw, the luck of your DNA. It has to do with the fact that when you enter into the body of Christ and in prayer, and you are joined to, it's Psalm 133. It's like the oil that flows down from the head of Aaron, down the beard, through the, 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 the hem of his, right to the hem of his garment. There the Lord will command the blessing, life forevermore. Blessed are those other brethren. Brothers, dwell, brethren, brothers and sisters, dwell together in unity. This is not a time for individualistic Christianity. This is a time, if God's leading you, for goodness sake, don't do it then. Join in in prayer, especially in prayer. Many communities join in with everything else except prayer. But what Paul was saying to Timothy is this. You stir up the gift of you. It's there. Whether you feel like it or not, it's there because I laid hands on you. And here I'm interpreting laying of hands not just as the laying of hands of one person upon another, but there's something about the entering in to the life in the body, in the spirit. I would ask you to consider that and pray about it. And I would very much like for us to be in that number of people who when the days of darkness come, find ourselves one and functioning in a not depressed way, but in a way that is victorious. That is why many of you are going through hard times now. Because God is getting us ready. He's destroying the flesh. That's why you're going through it. That's why you have no more hope in anything in the flesh. I've talked to so many of you and I see the same thing because we are going through it as a church. You have no more confidence in the flesh. You have no more confidence in yourself. Self. There are many, many things that I had confidence in up to several, just a few years ago. I find myself not having confidence in the easiest and simplest things in there. I have to pray up for some of the things that I never even heard about. And I read about that in Madame Guillaume. I read that about that in Therese of Avila. I read about that in John on the Cross. I read about that in, in the Scriptures. And I find that in the Scriptures, there is a point in which God brings us into that, into that life. You see, before that, there are multitudes who are attracted to the things of God. And so as a church, we make things as attractive as possible for people to be that. But the multitudes of people, they are attracted people. But there's another way in which God brings us and until we, have, we move from being attracted fans to people who, have come, who come across the offense of the cross 
we have not crossed over into the divine light yet. We are still admirers of Christianity. We are attracted to it. We are attracted to, it, to, 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 to the talent, the, the wonderful hospitality, the wonderful things. that are, All those are really important. But the multitudes are not disciples. The church generally has built itself on attracted people. 10,000 or 10. And they could be all just attracted people. But they've not come to the nub of the issue, the crux of the matter, where in the crux of that matter, God brings us to that crushing. That is why the difference between um, Hugh, what's it, Hugh Laurie and a doctor is that Hugh Laurie has not been crushed by 18 hours of rotation. He's not been, he's not been cured of the, 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 the pride of being a doctor. He's, or, or, or that he's a medical student. He hasn't been crushed yet. The difference between an, an actor who acts as an athlete and a real athlete is that that actor has not been crushed yet. The difference between a, Christ, a, person, a Christian who's been attracted to Christianity and finds it very, very cool and a real Christian who exhibits the life, divine life of Christ is that he's not been crushed yet. He or she has not been crushed yet. The difference is this. They have not been brought to the end of themselves and come to a place where they hit a down wall, a sheer wall, and find that I cannot go further. I cannot forgive. I cannot act in a Christian way because it's not even me. And so what I want is justice for myself. I want justice. What happens if that justice is not available to you? Will you be crushed? And so what happens is this. The church can sometimes build itself on its attractiveness. All that is good. We are called to be an attractive, winsome company of people. But that's not our calling. Our calling is to be a people of the cross. And when you hit the cross, the cross demands everything from you. It sucks everything out of you. Because unless that thing is sucked out of you, you cannot be filled with the life of God. The resurrection life is not for someone who has not died. You can celebrate Easter all the rest of your life, but unless you've died, you do not have resurrection life. And so what God is is doing in us is this. He's doing that work in us, and you are feeling it sometimes. You're feeling it. You're feeling that you've come to an end of yourself, and you're feeling that the Christian life is very, very hard, very, very costly, and how can I move forward? And the great thing is this, Paul says, just fan, fan into flame from the Lord. Fan into the flame, the fire that is in you. Unless you experience fire, you cannot move forward. When God brings a fire in you, He will put to death your self-will. Amen? So that your Christianity is not attractive because it is attractive to your self-will that Jesus is another way of being successful or being cool or being happy, but it's, it's a discarded life, a new life that's there. So I want to put it to you. Join us for prayer. Join the body of Christ. Join the body. If you can, stir up the gift of God that's in you. Come for, for fall conference if you can. If you have problems, let us know. We will do whatever we can for that. For that.
That is my appeal to you. We will find a way. Amen? Let us pray. We'll talk more about stirring up and fanning the flame. The fanning into flame of a fire that may be in embers, in its embers. But there's a wind blowing. There's a wind blowing. And as we begin to praise the Lord, begin to wait upon the Lord and, and do whatever we can to be around the body of Christ, something gets fanned. Praise your name, Lord. Hallelujah. If God's speaking to you, you don't have to indicate it or show it. I just want to invite you to respond to Him in your heart. I believe we are living in serious times in which God is giving us an opportunity. to be prepared for the days ahead. They will be uncomfortable. And the stirring up, the fanning to flame, involves a lot of uncomfortable things. Not impossible. Not outside our reach. Those things that we do to fan our flame, themselves, in and of themselves, will not bring forth the supernatural life of Christ. He will do that. He calls us to fan into flame what is already there. Praise God. You don't have to say, well, spirituality is for other people. It's, it's there. It's given to you and given to me.